Thanks, guys. Just so Debbie Biddle doesn't have to answer this question 560 times, if you want to have somebody from the choir stay at your house that evening, um, what you're signing up for is you pick them up after the concert, they'll have already eaten, you th- sleep, they sleep at your house, and then you serve them breakfast and drop them off here in the morning, like at 9 or 10 or whatever Debbie says. So that's, that's what you're signing up for, that terrible hardship. So <laughs> hopefully you'll get it. I'm hoping that we can have, just have some great conversations with some young people and show them that we love what they're doing and so on. Okay. <clears throat> so we're doing this series called Dark Christmas, the gritty reality of redemption's arrival because there are things in the Christmas story that are just not sweet little things. They're not silent nights and shining stars and so on. It's like, it's, and it's, it's really good because if it was just that, we wouldn't really believe it. We know life is a mixture of junk and pain and suffering and also things that are redemptive and helpful and great and overcoming and all that kind of thing. And the Christmas story is just full of that. And one of the things sometimes we pass over is, is the real darkness, the grittiness of, of the story. Um, the first week we did um, Mary and Joseph losing their good name and the, the difficulty associated with that. The second week, um, I can't remember right now what we did. I, my dog kept me up all night last, last night. I'm a little bit of a punchy mood, sorry. Um, but it was great. The sermon was, was fabulous. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, I just, I'm spacing right now. And then the, the, today we're going to talk about um, the flight to Egypt. The, the, the Holy Family, as they're called, were refugees, you know? And for some of us, that doesn't seem terribly relevant. Um, but if you don't think the Holy Family's refugees is relevant, it's actually not because the Bible's irrelevant. It's actually because you're out of touch with what life is like for most of humanity. The church has cherished the story of the Holy Family as refugees, partly because the world has always been full of them. Um, depending on who's counting um, you agree with, there are between 33 and 51 million um, refugees in the world right this minute. 12 mil- million of them are in camps. Can you imagine that? There's 12 million people right now. They will celebrate Christmas this year, those of them who do, in a refugee camp, right? 26, 21 million of them have lost their homes. Last year, I read some, just a few weeks ago, I read some number that something like 16,000 Syrians had drowned trying to get to Europe. That's not not 16,000 going to Europe. That is 16,000 human beings trying to get out of Syria that had died drowning in the waterways between Syria and Europe. That's what it's like there right now. Hundreds of thousands of people fleeing for their lives. That's, and here's the thing. Yes, it's a blow up right now. It's also been happening throughout human life, throughout the world, from time immemorial. You wouldn't necessarily know this to watch the news, and I, I don't want to pick on the news because they have to decide what to do that's going on in the whole world, but you wouldn't necessarily know this, but actually in the world right now, the people most being made refugees, most being killed, most being oppressed, and most being persecuted most directly are all Christians. Now, not all Christians, but the largest portions in the most places of the world are Christians. Now, that doesn't mean that, like, we somehow are therefore oppressed and we can feel bad about ourselves and therefore other people can't tell us that we should treat them better. That's not what I mean. What I mean is, is that if we have a proper proportionate compassion to those in humanity that are really suffering, one of the things we should really be caring about, caring about all the time, and especially right now, is how Christians are treated throughout the world. It's not just something we do at church because there are folks. It's actually the the majority of people who are being terribly oppressed throughout the world. In fact, um, some of you have seen that little sign that has been used by the um, by ISIS. Um, you know what that sign is for? It's the same derogatory title that's in this passage. I'll come back to that in just a little bit. Um, one of the, the things, the reasons why talking about um, refugees, I think, matters for you, even if you've never been one, because I've never been a refugee. Most of you probably haven't been one. But here's the thing. What refugees struggle with more acutely is something that all of us end up dealing with, and that is this. A refugee essentially is a person— one of the reasons why we feel so much compassion and should for refugees is it's something that no matter how well they fulfilled their responsibility within their own sphere of responsibility, something outside of that happened to them that they couldn't control, right? So, 
normally we don't say about refugees, well, they should have seen that tsunami coming, right? Or, you know, well, they should have known there was going to be this huge geopolitical attack from 400 miles away and that people who bought arms illegally were going to come through and kill everyone, right? We don't think that. We think these are people that were basically minding their own business, probably fulfilling their responsibilities and doing the right thing, just like you, right? And their house was destroyed, their children, their parents were killed, something happened, right? And essentially what that gets at is this. There are flat things outside of your control. There's just things outside of your control that you can't control. And when they, and you kind of internally kind of want them to go your way. And you sort of, there's this emotional internal human logic that if we do kind of what we're supposed to do within the, the realm we can control, it sort of makes sense to us that God should kind of control the things we can't so that our life would go decently well. Now, there's no actual logical reason that would be true. But emotionally, we kind of feel like that should be true. And in that sense, everybody deals with the question of what, what do I do with the, the things outside of my control if they don't go the way they should? And how do I relate to God? Because sometimes it just feels like I'm doing what I'm supposed to do and he's not doing what he's supposed to do. And for that reason, I want to focus on Joseph this morning. Somebody was telling me um, in the lobby that they had edited a Bible dictionary a few years back and the entry on Joseph had 12 Joseph, biblical Josephs in it and they had omitted one. They'd forgotten about one and it was this one. And it was it, just to illustrate that, that, you know, he's kind of an important character but all we ever talk about is Mary. And Mary's great. I mean, God bless her. And when I preach on Luke, we'll talk about Mary because Luke talks about Mary. But Matthew talks about Joseph. And one of the things that's really interesting about Joseph is, is that, you know, he gets more dreams than Mary. It's four. There's only one for Mary, right? You're going to be pregnant. Got it, right? With Joseph, it's like, you're going to marry. And, and, and they're all bad. I mean, here's the thing. He gets four angels. It's all bad news. It's like, the first one is, okay, so um, the girl you want to not marry because she's pregnant, you're going to marry her. Um, you're actually not going to do the thing people partly get married to do for like a year. And also, um, you don't get to pick the name of your firstborn. So, hi, right? And then the next time there's a dream, he's like, oh, um, so there's people coming to kill you, maybe right now. Uh, maybe we could wrap this up, the sleeping thing you're doing, and go to another continent. Right? Look, you're just going to be a refugee indefinitely. Right? And then the third time, it's like, you can go home, sort of. Right? Because he get, gets halfway home, right? And then he has another dream where he's like, so you know how you like kind of made a life for yourself in Bethlehem for a while and you kind of got out of the podunk and sort of left all the talking behind? Yeah, you're not going to live there. You're going to go back to Galilee and live in the place where they hate you. Right? Which somebody was saying after the last service was the garrison city for the Romans. So not only was it like this podunk town in the middle of nowhere, it was like where the Nazis hung out. Like that's where you're from. You get to go back there. Yay. Right? And here, one of the things that's very interesting about Joseph, too, is that <clears throat> you read these passages, and this dude just flat delivers every time. God tells him to do something, he just flat does it. That's all there is to it. That's all, in fact, that's almost all we know about Joseph. Almost all we know about Joseph is he was probably Jewish. <laughs> right? He was Jewish. He was male. And he just flat did what God said. That's basically what we know about Joseph, right? The first dream, this is what it says after, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him. He took Mary home as his wife, and he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. He just straight did the three things he was told to do. Just like that. The next thing you hear about him is, he says, get up, take the mother and the child, and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you. Indefinite, right? Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt. Now, I mean, this is not like you driving to Door County. Like, this, he's never even been there before. He's like getting up, leaving his country, going to a totally different place, speaks another language. Doesn't have a helicopter, okay? And then coming home, it says, get up, it's time to go home. And now, the, one of the things that's interesting about this passage is there's no urgency in this one, right? Herod's dead, you can go home. 
whenever you feel like it, right? But look what it says. So he got up and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. Same language as getting up in the middle of the night. He had the dream. Right then he got up. He packed. I mean, it sounds like he doesn't have a lot of stuff, doesn't it? It's like faster than a dorm room, right? And he just, boom, he just flat does it. He's like, it's time to go home. I'm not staying here a minute longer. Gets his stuff and off they go. And then he gets the last dream where he says, listen, you can't go you can't go back to Bethlehem. And so he was ordered a dream. He withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. Just straight up, just does it. Right? And when you think about this guy, I mean, think about it. God destroys his business. Right? He wrecks his view of what his marriage is going to be like. Tells him he's got to live in some foreign country. I mean, think about this. I mean, this is a recipe for bitterness, right? I mean, This is a guy who does everything he's supposed to do, not only just responsibly in his life, but does everything God asks of him. And yet, what does he get for it? Loses his business. Sounds like he dies young because he's already dead by the time Jesus gets crucified, right? Um, You know, he doesn't get to marry a virgin wife. I mean, you just just start going through and you're kind of like his life is just constantly disrupted, right? Which can lead you to kind of this idea of, if you think bitterly enough about it, I mean, are we just kind of like just God can, can't, God's cannon fodder? Are we just there to be used up and treated however he wants to treat us? And that's all there is to it. I mean, we just, we're just supposed to do what we're told, and that doesn't sound like fun, right? Now, I realize with that language, you know, we don't actually think about cannons anymore. Um, in fact, if you look up cannon fodder in the dictionary, it says uh, military troops used in an operation that are expected to die, right? But where did we get that from, Right? Where do we get the idea of these are the people who are just going to die? Just be used up. Well, it's because cannon fodder was the gunpowder in a cannon, right? If you don't know anything about ballistics, here's a 30-second overview, right? You've got a barrel, a projectile, something that lights the fire, and a propellant, right? So the, gun, the gunpowder is in here. You light it. It, expand, it blows up, and therefore the gases expand, and it shoots the projectile, right? Boom, we got it. ballistics, right? Same thing with a modern firearm, right? You've got the primer, you've got the casing, the primer goes in there, you've got the powder inside of it, and then the bullet on top, right? You fire the primer, it burns up the gunpowder and shoots the bullet out the end of the barrel, right? So, but w- there's nothing left. It just burns up. It's just smoke, and it's gone. There's just a little residue to clean up after. You almost get the sense that, like, this is Joseph's life. And you see... I think that for some of us, this is the human instinctual reaction to life with God. Because we feel the suffering, we have not yet experienced the glory. We see God's commandments, we don't understand the full rationale for them. We're called to do something in his plan that we don't have the blueprint for. And so were these little soldiers kind of trying to deliver on stuff, and it just kind of feels like we're doing, I'm doing my responsibility, I'm doing my thing, I'm even taking care of your interests within my area, why won't you take care of mine and yours? Right? I mean, am I just your cannon fodder? Is that all this is? And um, one of the reasons why that's important is because it's, it really is the, um, it's the logic that destroys faith, and it also wrecks godliness. So one, it'll wreck faith. It'll keep you from trusting God. And what you really need when you're in that place is you actually need the voice of God. You actually need him to teach you. And if you don't trust him, you can't listen. That's bad enough. But in addition to that, it destroys godliness, your ability to actually deliver, to be a a Joseph in that sense. Because what you'll end up focusing on, you'll focus all your time and all your energy resisting the relationship you should have with the things that are your greatest opportunities. Um, you, you could say it this way, that you'll focus on the facts of your problems rather than on the problems themselves, right? So you'll get cancer, and you'll feel like you did everything you were supposed to do, and you can't control this, and why is this happening, and this shouldn't be happening to me, and so on, rather than what your job is. Your job is to fight cancer and to glorify Christ and to fulfill your duties and roles while you fight cancer. That's your job. If you spend all your time and energy and emotional turmoil on the fact that you have it, you're not doing what you have to do with it. Same thing with a job. Like, maybe you're a, you're a good worker and you were nice at work or something and you got laid off and it's not your fault. Listen, I get that it hurts, okay? Um, but 
if you dwell on the fact of your unemployment, you're not, what you're supposed to do is to go try to get a job, right? To, to do what you're called to do. Retrain, be charming in interviews, send out resumes, buy a hot dog car. I don't know, but you, I mean, you got to, you got to work towards the solution. Same thing with unhappiness. I mean, generally speaking, in our modern culture, people think happiness is something you experience passively, like a kiss or something. And it's not. Happiness is something that you do. You go get. Like, it has clear components. You're responsible for your happiness. Your happiness is your job, right? It's not only your job to be happy, it's your job to be happy so you don't make everybody else's life miserable. I mean, we tend to think it's other people's job to make us happy. No, it's your job to be happy for them. So it's easier for them to be happy. And if you spend your time focusing on the fact that you're not happy or you don't like how somebody's not making you happy, blah, 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 you totally miss that your God-given energy, time, effort, knowledge, and so on is, is there for you to do something with that problem, not perseverate on that problem. And so I feel like we've got to really break through this thing, and um, there's just a couple places in this passage that I think might be helpful. Um, one, one of the things that comes across in this section of Matthew is that Matthew tells us what he's doing by quoting Old Testament passages. So if you read the first three chapters of Matthew and you pay attention, every time something happens, basically, Matthew says, and this is was fulfilled what the prophet said, such and such and so and so. There's a bunch of them throughout Matthew 1 through 3. And there's two of them in this passage. One of them is this one. Out of Egypt I called my son. It's from Hosea 11, chapter 11, verse 1. And the main idea that this section is meant to get across to us, I think, is, is that, um, that God saved Jesus so that Jesus could save everyone else. And he did it through Joseph, right? There's, um, there's basically two... Not, there's not just two, but there are two kind of storylines because some, you look at this passage and it's really easy to think of it in the normal movie storyline trope. That is, that there's a someone in distress and there's somebody to save that somebody in distress and Joseph has to be the hero and God calls Joseph to be the hero. So you can look at like, you know, Snow White or the Princess Bride or King Kong or whatever and you've got a, like the damsel in distress and there's going to be a savior, right? That's one storyline, but there's another storyline that's pretty common. I think I got 26 Facebook responses when I put it out there. And that is this. It's the save the Savior so that he can do the saving, or she. Especially in modern TV shows, it's always, the Savior's always a she, right? Save the Savior so that they can do the saving, right? And heroes, you know, save the cheerleader, save the world. Once upon a time, 12-year-old boy gets the Savior to believe so that she can save. Lord of the Rings, Samwise Gamgee carries Frodo up the hill. Incredibles, the secretary becomes a good person and saves the Incredibles so that they can save the world. The Golden Child from the 80s, anybody seen that movie? Yeah. Right? Woo! Eddie Murphy, right? Like, yeah, I won't go into that. Even like Frozen, right? You've got to save Elsa's heart so that Elsa can end the eternal winter that she also did create. It's kind of a postmodern movie. Anyway, the point is, the, the point is, is that when you see... Joseph isn't the savior of the damsel in distress. Joseph is the one who is called the normal person that's called— because see, in this trope, the one who saves the savior is a normal person who becomes a hero because they save the savior. And you see, that's what Joseph is. He's the normal person who gets called on in strange circumstances to save the savior so that he can do the saving, right? Um, one, of the re one of the ways that comes across is because this verse seems to have nothing to do with Jesus. It seems to be like a proof text like, out of, out of Egypt I called my son, right? Jesus is the son of God. Out of Egypt I called my get it, right? Except when you read Hosea, that's not what the verse is about. When you read Hosea, the verse is about um, my son in that context is Israel. Israel was in Egypt in slavery and captivity under the oppression of the Egyptian rulers of that time. And through Moses— the first savior, right? God delivered his people out of Egypt, and at that moment he said, out of Egypt I called my son. And in Hosea, he's rehearsing that history and saying, this is what happened in the past. Out of Egypt I called my son, right? And so it kind of sounds weird. Like, 
well, Matthew, why would you do that? Why would you, like, put that verse on there when it doesn't really mean that? It just kind of feels like you're kind of playing loose with the Bible, right? Except, once you start thinking about it, you start going, okay, wait a second, parallels here, right? Do you remember what was happening to all the children when Moses was born? Right? The Pharaoh was trying to kill all the male children, right? Because he was trying to make sure that Israel couldn't get a savior, right? Um, if, if you don't know anything about the Exodus story, I actually don't think the new movie will help you learn anything about it. Um, and I would encourage you not to go see it because if we watch these movies, they will make more of them. That's my big ploy to not see them, okay? They will make more of them, okay? We need to want to lose a lot of money and then they'll either stop or they'll get somebody else to direct them. That's my pitch on that. Okay. Um, so when you start looking at this, right, you've got, you've got a child where the person in power who did not want to relinquish power to God's Savior and wanted to hold the people in continued oppression seeks to kill the Savior. The Savior is saved by an unlikely person, right? Pharaoh's daughter, Joseph, this carpenter nobody, right? They're saved from that moment. They're brought to Egypt. They're called out of Egypt, right? And in the first Exodus, Moses calls out God's son, the people of Israel from Egypt. Jesus goes down into Egypt to escape it, and God calls him out with Joseph. He calls his son out of Egypt. But now think about the way that's talked about in the whole of the Bible, that Egypt in the Exodus is seen as the great metaphor of salvation, that Egypt is the land of slavery and oppression. That's ultimately what happens to us because of sin. It's not just guilt, because of guilt we go to hell. Slavery is an oppression. It's a, it, or sorry, sin is a slavery that is an oppression. It binds us and holds us in and destroys us. And it's only through God's miraculous action that a Savior can come and he can call us out of that. And so through Jesus, ultimately, Joseph comes out of Egypt. You see? Because ultimately, Jesus is going to lay down his life for all those in the slavery of sin, under the oppression of the brokenness of sin, death, and hell. And, and it, the Bible uses the picture of coming out of Egypt and going into the promised land as the metaphor of salvation. And so when Jesus comes out of Egypt and comes back into Israel, into his place as Savior, and survives to be the second Moses, when Jesus comes out, he's already calling out salvation. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Salvation of, for humanity comes out. Out of Egypt, I call my son. It's not just a story of Joseph saving Jesus. It's a precursor to the ending of that story. Because Joseph saves the Savior, Jesus is the one then who calls the rest of humanity that God has claimed for himself out of sin, death, and hell and the slavery that comes with it out of Egypt, he has called his son. You see, Matthew is not playing games with Hosea. He's trying to help us understand that Joseph is not the one who's making all the sacrifices. Joseph actually isn't the savior. He's the one who saves the savior. I'll get back to some of the significance of that in a minute. But let's look at the second verse. The second verse is kind of interesting where it says, um, it says he comes back, it says they go and they live in Nazareth, and then Matthew says, so will be filled what was said in the prophets, he will be called a Nazarene, right? Anybody know where that is in the prophets? Yeah. Um, I'll give you my car if you know where it is in the prophets. Right after church, you can have my car. Anybody? Joel, wait to guess. Wait, I mean, throw, might as well throw it in there. There's only 48 books, right? It's one out of 48 chance. I mean, somebody's going to get it. Just yell it. No, yeah. The reason I can say that, right, is because it's not in the Bible. It's not there. You can read the entire Old Testament, and you will not find one verse anywhere in the entire Old Testament that says he'll be called a Nazarene. Or anything similar, like the servant will be called a Nazarene. Or the Nazarene. It just doesn't say it. It doesn't say it anywhere. Um, and what that's meant to teach us is, is that Jesus became an absolute nobody so that we could be somebody in God, right? Now, how does, it, how does it teach that? Okay, sorry. One of the funny things about Matthew is if you look at all the other Old Testament, when he, when he says, in the prophet, it says such and such and so and so, we know where all those Old Testament quotations are. They're very clear. They're all, they're all in the marginal reading of your Bible. If you open your Bible, it'll be a little letter, and it'll say, it's Isaiah seven fourteen, it's Micah 5, 2. But for this one, it's not there, Right? Which is kind of interesting, but if you look at the other places in the Bible where 
the, the word Nazarene is used. Nazareth is, is like sort of the key place that sort of just stinks, right? Everybody hates it, right? Um, it's sort of Hickville where the Nazis hang out, right? And, you know, most books are written by city types, right? And so country people don't come off real well in them, right? Just, just look at how Southerners come off in East Coast news organizations, right? And when you look at—so, for example, in, in John— I think it's Andrew that comes to Nathaniel, and he's like, dude, we found the Messiah. Like, the, the Messiah. We found him. And he's like, really? Well, that's pretty cool. He's like, and the question, here's the question he asks. Where's he from? Right? And, and, and he's from Nazareth. And his response is, really? What good can possibly come from there, right? It's Hickville. Right? Incidentally, if you put in Hick in Google pictures, images, one of the ones that comes up in the top 100 is a—, is a um, a Green Bay Packers fan with a cheesehead bra. So they make those now. And, um, you know, we—Wisconsin is at the—you know, we've got—we've got that. We can identify with this biblical passage. I mean, it's a little bit like saying—it's a little bit like saying the next—the next leader of the world is, con- is going to come right out of Montello anytime. You know what I mean? It's like that. Richland Center. I mean, the place where world leaders come from. Right? I mean, nobody believes that. Right? Or if you get to Acts 24, um, this is the point where Paul is now not preaching in synagogues anymore. He's in custody, he's in jail, and he's speaking in front of government officials. Right? Now, government officials, they know about naming things. Right? Because what were the Christians calling themselves in the book of Acts? Do you remember? The way and disciples. That's it, right? So they would call it, they would say the disciples, and they would call what they believed the way. Now, the problem with the way is, is if you let somebody else call something the way, they're kind of controlling the conversation, aren't they? Right? Well, I believe in the way. Well, it's the, it's a direction with the definite pronoun. I can't get around that, right? You gotta, you gotta mix that one up. It's like letting somebody call themselves a, a progressive or a, I don't know, a I can't think of it. A libertarian, right? I was like, I'm the only one who believes in liberty in the room, right? And you're kind of like, ah, I think I want to change that conversation a little bit, right? And so what do they call it? They, they called it the Nazarene sect, right? There's a good pejorative that'll shut this one down, right? They don't even say it's related to Jesus. The first thing in, in Antioch, they called them Christians, which was meant to be derogatory, but it still had the word Christ in it, which means anointed one. That's not going to work, right? You need, a, you need something worse than that. And so what they came up with in the government circles, because these people are smarter, you know, is they called it the Nazarene sect. So sect is already kind of pejorative. It's like cult, right? Well, it's the Nazarene sect, right? And they were careful to use the word Nazarene because they knew everybody hated that town and it was hick nowhere. The sign that the ISIS militants spray on Christians' houses is, it, it's called the sign of the Nazarene. One of our missionaries who's retired, who goes to High Point Church, who was in the United Arab Emirates for years, he said that's what people would call him when they wanted to sneer at him. A Nazarene. Because to this day, at least within militant Islamic culture, um, calling a Christian a Nazarene is still a derogatory attack slur. And so when Matthew says, he will be called a Nazarene, He's not quoting a particular verse. And one of the signals that he's not quoting a particular verse is it's the only place in Matthew 1 through 3 where a Old Testament prophecy is, um, is, is pointed to where the word prophets is plural. So in every other place where there's a quotation of the Old Testament, it says, like it says in the prophet, such and such, because it's one prophet. They're talking about a particular place. But here Matthew says, like it says in the prophets, plural, he'll be called a Nazarene. What he's saying, what Matthew's saying is, in the whole of the Old Testament, wherever the Messiah is talked about, there are pictures of him in glory, about him being this great king. But everywhere it also talks about him being nobody. Him being totally despised and utterly unlikely. And in that sense, the whole Testament says that he'd be called a Nazarene, and that's what Jesus was. 
In um, Isaiah 53, here's just an example of this, speaking about the servant, Messiah. He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not, right? Negative despised, despised, positive we didn't esteem him. Men hide their faces, Metaphor of exclusion, right? And in addition to the despised, also the unlikely is in this one too because he says, like a root out of dry ground, right? Like how often is the ground totally dry and cracked and green stuff just starts sprouting up? It doesn't, right? If you look at unlikely, Isaiah 11, one's another example of this. A shoot will come from the stump of Jesse from the roots. His roots, a branch will bear fruit. Meaning you've got an apple tree and you cut the thing off at the ground, So the stump is so narrowed that it's just the roots, right? And you think you've got the thing killed? Have you ever had a tree like this in your yard? Right? You think, if I just cut this thing down, it'll just rot and that'll be it. And then then you cut it down, and then it sprouts out of the stump. And you're like... (sighs) For most trees, that's very unlikely. They don't do that. And what he's saying is, from a dead stump that nothing has been growing out of for a long time, all of a sudden it will sprout and it will grow sufficiently into a tree that it will actually bear fruit. What that means is that the coming of the Messiah would be so from such a terrifyingly unlikely source that it would just be completely, it would just seem completely crazy that the person could possibly be the anointed one. That's exactly, that was exactly true of Jesus. And so, when you think about, about that, you can ask the question, so how does that affect Joseph? Like, and how does that affect us? And here's how it affects us. Jesus took on Joseph's nobodiness. He, was, he wasn't referred to as the son of God, was he? By other people. He was referred to as the carpenter's son the nobody from Nazareth. But you know what? You know what, um, what Joseph's called? I mean, think about this in Matthew one twenty, with the first vision that he has, the, the, the angel shows up, and you just, you gotta, you gotta think about this for a minute. You gotta let yourself enter into the moment for a second. This guy, okay, there's just nobody from nowhere, right? Probably entirely uneducated, a completely unremarkable person, Okay? And, and an angel shows up and he says, Joseph, son of David. <laughs> right? And we read that and it doesn't, we don't laugh. Right? David had been dead a thousand years. It would be like me showing up to some like, uh, as an angel, like in some Anglo's bedroom and saying, you know, like, you know, so-and-so, son of Arthur. <laughs> you know? Like, do this. It, it's, it's crazy, right? I mean, the bloodline was so thin by that point, so many lines, so far away, so distant from the king. He's a carpenter, for God's sake. This angel shows up a thousand years later to this guy who's nobody. He says, he says, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife for what's conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Here's what you're going to do. Do you see what's happened here? The king has become the son of the carpenter. He's become absolutely nobody. Nothing. He's the Nazarene. He's the, he's the nothing. And in doing so, Joseph is seen as the son of David that he is meant to be. And he is drawn into this drama where he becomes the savior of the savior. Now you talk about, yeah, is he gunpowder? Is his life getting burned up? Yeah, it is. Is, his, is he losing his business? Is, his, is he got a weird marriage? I mean, yes. Okay, I mean, you could argue he had the weirdest marriage ever. Okay? He became the savior of the savior. Right? And this is where we have to get. Okay? You have to get there. You have to get to the place where no matter how your life is going, 
you can see that you are not just being burned up for the purposes of God, no matter what you can see, but that you are being called to something that Jesus was called. You're being taken up into his dignity as he has come down into our Nazarethness. And you are not only being called that and counted as that, but you are actually being taken in to the usefulness of it such that you are participating in the saving. And you have to get your mind around that enough to get out of the focus on the fact of the thing and the why aren't you doing this and the fear and anger that is so frustrated because ultimately what the Bible says happened here is that as Jesus became a Nazarene and through his death and resurrection as an even more lost one, this was the result, it says in Romans, for you, that's you who believe in Jesus, did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. Again, see the slave reference to salvation being a deliverance from oppression out of Egypt I've called my son. A slave again to fear, but you receive the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children, God's children. Now, if we are children, then we're heirs, heirs of God, and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Let me just end quickly with a couple things. One is, you totally are God's cannon fodder, but you are only God's cannon fodder. You see, while our lives get used up in the purposes of God, and while our lives get terribly disrupted, and while our dreams get shattered, and while all that happens to us, we may believe that we're sort of God's using us up for the projectile of his purposes. And he is. And it's an enormous dignity. Because God has never, has never invited us to anything he didn't foreknow in his loving purposes and that he didn't sacrifice a hundred times more himself. You see, because you could say, okay, Nick, you're saying God, God can like just kind of burn us up like that. That sounds like the language of abuse. I mean, like that doesn't sound like a good relationship. Yeah, but just because you're using the wrong metaphor, that's all. If, if you had a husband and wife and you were counseling with them and the husband was living in this really nice house and he had his wife living in this terrible hovel, you know, like walking to work while he was driving to Ben's and he's like, you know what? You're my wife and you should love me. That's abuse. Absolutely. Right? But if they're just both poor, she lives in the same hovel, has to walk to work, to, but he does too. Like, he, I mean, he's doing everything for that family to live and he was working as hard as he can and, and it's, they're just poor. Then should she endure that? Absolutely. That's not abuse. That's called being a wife. Right? Should he stay? Absolutely. It's called being a husband. Because that's, that's what it is. He, he's, he's entering into that just as much as you. It's only when somebody asks you to do something they're not willing to do themselves, and they think that you should take on the suffering for their own purposes, that it becomes abuse. That that's a leader you shouldn't follow. But when that leader's really doing something more for your good than his, and sacrificing for it a thousand times more than you for it, to call that abuse is just a lack of clarity because we're thinking emotionally. We're thinking out of fear and anger. Right? Yeah, you are God's cannon fodder. Absolutely. And Jesus was a thousand times more than you. And the projectile of God's purposes is your salvation. The second thing is God intentionally did not give us a philosophical defense for why your life can stink. Okay? He did not do that. You will search the Bible mostly. There's some parts where you could construct one, but that's not what he does. The, 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 the answer God gives for why your life cannot go well is the, the response that you give to somebody who is angry and afraid. You just don't talk to somebody who's angry and afraid the way you talk to somebody who's just thinking through something rationally and has no personal self-interest in it. The, the problem that we have is when we think about God, we think we're being philosophical, and we're not. 
When we think about God, we immediately know if there's a God, it's going to make a demand on us. It's going to affect our lives. It's going to affect the way we—he's probably going to have something moral. It's like we—all the, the, the fears and desires and hopes all come rushing in, and we're full of fear and pride and anger and frustration and hope and, and all these things. And yet here's the thing we have to remember about being a human being that we don't want to know in the modern world. When we think the most emotionally, our, our brains and our minds persuade ourselves that we're thinking the most rationally, okay? That's why sometimes when people get in these huge arguments, like in their marriage or whatever, and they're the, it's like in the argument, they feel like their argument is so clear, and the only way the other person could be not agreeing with them right now is because they just, they're evil, or like they're stupid, Right? And then, like, the next morning, you try to, like, re-put those arguments together, and they're just not as clear as they were, right? Or when you finally sit down and listen to their point of view, their point of view makes just as much sense as yours, and so now you got to deal with the fact that both of you clearly live on different planets in terms of perception, right? But it's both of you, because we just don't—in fact, psychologists call it flooding, right? You just get too much adrenaline, too much anger. It creates—it creates a situation where you think you're being clear, but you're not, Right? It's very rarely that we think muddled and we know we're muddled. And so when we think about God, especially in relationship to our felt suffering and whether or not our life is going the way we want it to, the minute we enter into that, it's almost impossible not to think out of fear and anger or pride that I'm fabulous and that's why my life is going great. And so the answer you give somebody who's trying to think through something in a place of fear and pride is something that they can hear in that psychological place, which isn't a philosophical argument. I've tried it. What he's, what he's done, he's saying, listen, I realize I'm asking you to, to go through something and to trust something, and you feel like that's unreasonable. Here's all I can tell you right now. I said this was going to happen. That there's nothing surprising about this at all. And I've gone through a hundred times more of it than you have. Okay? So I've done a hundred times more than I'm asking from you. Will you follow me? And will you trust me? See how that's a very different idea? But it's sculpted for a terrified, angry, frustrated, pride-filled people, which is what humans are. It's what we are. And so you might be like, well, I want an answer. You, well, yeah, you're going to get an answer, but it might, you, you're like, well, I want a philosophical answer because I'm thinking so clearly. Well, A, God can give whatever answer he wants. B, you're not thinking nearly as clearly as you think you are. And C, this answer is actually better because it works in a thousand different situations. You could have a thousand different people. See, if we all got together and wrote out the rational argument for why we're taking care of our life, and so God should take better care of our life, because if we're taking care of his stuff, he should take care of ours. And we wrote it all out, why we thought that worked, we'd have like 50 different arguments. And so God just gives one flat argument. Listen, you're going to need to trust me. I've done a, I've suffered a hundred times more than you. Okay? I've proven through that suffering that I'm good. And I've also proven that it's, it, it doesn't end with the suffering. That's why there's an empty tomb. We're going to get to that sometime in April. Okay? But that, that whatever the way, wherever the way of the cross goes, it goes past it. And when you recognize God's foreknowledge and God's sacrifice in it, that he's never asked anything from you he didn't provide for you. The reason God can get, ask anything of you is because he's done everything for you. We tend to just focus on the first part of that sentence. Emotionally, right? And then the last thing is this. There's this kind of throwaway verse that people like to read like at Mother's Day. At the end of this section in Luke that talks about Jesus' youth. It goes through where he's like 12 year old and 12 years old in the, but it covers the whole infancy narrative too. And then right at the end, to kind of break into Jesus' ministry, I think it goes with John the Baptist and then breaks into Jesus' adult ministry. There's this verse that says this. Then he went down to Nazareth with them, meaning his parents, and was obedient to them. But his mother, this is Mary, treasured all these things in her heart. And it's, it's, it's a fun verse to read on Mother's Day. But, but here's what it means. And there's actually two verses in the first chapters of Luke that says that Mary did that. And that is this. Mary learned from 
what actually happened in her life rather than how she necessarily thought it through. Like she watched what Jesus did and she processed that in the process of doing it. One of the things, if you've gone here for a while, you've heard me say a number of times, is that, that understanding, that obedience precedes understanding. That there are, there are many things, because we're not floating brains, there are many things that we don't ever really understand until we obey through something. And so what Luke is saying is, you know, Mary embraced this future that God gave her, which did not look fun, and was enormously painful. And she walked through this, and all the way walking through this, as things happened, she took a moment after something kind of came full circle, where she had a moment where she could look back and see God's providence working through it, and she could look at it and go, oh, I see, I see, okay, okay. And then some more years went by, and she saw Jesus developing, and she goes, Oh, okay. And she understood it. She pondered it. And then she treasured it. And that reality, that obedience precedes understanding, that we need to be people who, instead of spending our time being upset that we're, we're too Josephed to, like, trust God, that what we need to do is we need to, we need to be more like Joseph. We need to put our big boy pants on and we need to do what God told us to do, and we need to obey him with a good attitude, and we need to accept the disruption in our life, and we need, to, we need to be that person, and we need to obey and recognize that as we go along, we need to ponder and cherish, ponder and cherish. Because God will show us things as time moves on. You'll get, you will get some, through something in your life and you'll be reading your Bible, and you'll be trying to understand how God leads, and something will kind of resolve itself for the moment— and you will have an opportunity in that moment if you're obeying and trying to understand Jesus, you will see that and you'll ponder it and you'll go, oh, I get it. I get it. And then you'll say, that's beautiful. It's, it's beautiful. Right? I remember when I first came, this is, uh, we'll end with this, it'll be just a second. I remember when I came, to, came here to be a pastor, it was the only church in America that was interested in hiring me. And, um, the funny, ironic thing is this is the sermon I preached to the elders and their wives and the search committee and their wives right there five years ago. This was like my audition sermon. Um, and I remember feeling like I didn't really want to live in Wisconsin. And I was living in Florida at the time on the Gulf Coast, okay, if you don't know that. I was in Panama City. I had a boat and so forth. Um, and I remember talking about Madison and I— and I, re I realized that I had grown up as a nobody in a dairy town, right? I'd gone to a public secular university that had totally shaped me to love the secular mind and the secular world. I had honed in ministry as somebody that focused on suburban people, like that lifestyle. I went to a place that like sort of smoothed me, smoothed the East Coast out of me. I could have never done ministry here East Coast up like I had been. The South made me able to do that. In the South, I also learned how to shoot, shoot archery, go hunting, do all the redneck things the outdoor people do. And so I, over this kind of sort of strange providence, I had become this like philosophy reading, intellectual, loving, engaging with secular people, redneck person who like loves to read analytical philosophy and can load my own ammo. And I just— as I was moving along in that through my life, I never would have said, oh yeah, Madison's this university town that's in a dairy world that the university is heavily agricultural but also intellectual. It's a blah, blah, blah. It's, you know, we've got rednecks and we've got this and we've got— and, and then I was like, oh. Huh. And there was this moment where I was like, Maybe God has shaped me for this. Maybe, and it's not, I didn't do it. I didn't, I didn't make my career, right? I mean, like we talk about like making our careers and like, oh, oh, oh. I could have never planned any of that stuff, right? It reminds me of an article I read one time where they interviewed Pope John Paul before he died and they said, how did you, how did you become, become Pope? <laughs> 
Like, how did you, it was basically, how did you order your career as a priest to progress and become pope? And he goes, I, I didn't do anything. I just was a priest. And then it was, there was communism, and we spoke the truth into it, and these things happened, and then one day Reagan showed, you know, like, and then we had these rallies, and then I was this, and I wrote that thing, and I just thought it was the right thing to do, and then, like, then they stinking elected me pope. <laughs> I don't know, I don't have to tell you, right? But I bet he pondered it at some point and thought that God was, like, amazing. And that is a place. It's not a, it's not a thought. That's not a, that's not a, that's not a proposition. It's not an argument. It's a place. Emotionally and psychologically and spiritually, you have to be in. And if you don't get into that place, you can't, you can't do it. You just, you're just going to be bitter. You're not going to trust God. You're just going to be like, why aren't you taking care of me? And if there was a God, he'd have treated me better and blah, 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 blah. And you're not going to obey like Joseph. And you, your life is still, you're still mortal. Your life is still going to go through all the pains of mortality. It's just not going to accomplish anything for glory. And it'll be really sad. But if you will believe in the one who knew everything before it happened and ordered it in his good pleasure and that suffered himself in it a thousand times more than you, who became absolutely nobody so that you could be a child of God, so that he could say, out of Egypt I called my son— that you as his son or daughter, he is called through Jesus out of death and slavery. Like, you can, you can be and embrace that. You can have it. It can be how you understand the Christmas story. And to whatever extent you feel oppressed as some kind of internal refugee that somehow the life outside that is pressing in on you, you'll begin to think of it as your greatest opportunity rather than as your greatest, the greatest injustice you've ever suffered even though it'll be both. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to trust you, the one who said of us, of all humanity, that it's caught in sin and it's slavery and oppression. Out of Egypt, I've called my son. And um, help us to follow the second Moses who accepted becoming a Nazarene on just a total nobody, to make us your child, to make us true sons and daughters of David and of Abraham and ultimately of Christ. And we pray that for all our brothers and sisters in the church and even in humanity that suffer under the oppression of being a refugee, we pray that you'd help them. We pray that you would help us to be part of their relief, but we pray that also they would see it for what it is. And those of us who suffer these things much less acutely, we pray that no less we would have the necessary attitude to see you the one who has gone before us, done far more than you've ever asked for us, and who has pledged that everything that we suffer in that name and in that way will produce a great, a great glory. We pray to be trusting of you, people who ponder and cherish the things we can't understand as we go along. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.